Well, good morning. It's so good to be able to sing together and worship our great God. And we're thankful you're here. I invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, as I uh, am just engaging with you this morning in this text, I want to let you know I was very excited to preach this morning. Um, it's been about four weeks or so since I was preaching up here, and, and so I was excited as we continue on our series in 1 Corinthians, and so when I had an opportunity to look at what is the text that I'm going to be sharing when I get back up front in the pulpit, I was thrilled to see it's 1 Corinthians chapter 11 because we're going to be looking at head coverings this morning. <laughs> head coverings, shaving your head, long hair, etc., etc. You know, in our staff meeting on Tuesdays, we read through uh, two chapters in scripture each day and on Tuesdays, and then we, we go through all the prayer requests. And so uh, there, there are sometimes we come across different texts of scripture where there are names or places that are mentioned in scripture, and to pronounce them is a little bit more difficult. And so sometimes guys will be reading, and they'll stop sometimes mid-verse just to let the next guy up have to pronounce all of the names. And uh, they'll stop and everybody will look up and the next person will look up like, am I supposed to start now? That's what I feel like Butch is doing this morning, okay? He stopped in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, and now it's verses 2 to 16 that we'll pick up there. It's a great passage, uh, and I'm thankful to be able to preach it today. Um, I ask you to stay with me, okay? Stay with me. Don't tune out. As we read through this text, there's a lot here for us. Buckle up. We have a lot to cover in a short amount of time. So are you ready? Man, are you ready? You're ready. All right, here we go. First Corinthians chapter 11. Let's begin in verse 2, and we'll go right through to verse 16. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as a woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it's her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Last series, we passed out magnets. This series, we're preaching out razors and hats for everybody as you leave today. Make sure you get a razor and a hat, okay? I'm kidding. This is quite a text, 
okay? It's quite a text. And yet, let me remind us as we go to the text of Scripture, it is given by God, okay? The Word of God tells us all Scripture is profitable. It is God-breathed. It originates with God, and it is profitable for us. Uh, This is authoritative. It is the Word of God. And so as we look at this passage today, please do not dismiss that. Please do not think, oh, I'm going to tune out today. Don't tune out. This is important And I believe we're going to see a lot of important things this morning as we look at this great text of Scripture. I want to begin by looking at Paul's commendation in verse 2 real quick. Look at how he begins. He says, I commend you. This was a rare statement for the church in Corinth, wasn't it? Uh, We've looked at so many things that Paul is trying to correct them on. So many things that he's trying to tell them they need to fix and they need to do. But he says, I commend you. So that should perk you up a little bit and think, what? What is he commending them for? Look what he says. I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. The word tradition is that which is taught here. It's that which Paul delivered and taught to them under the authority of the Spirit of God and under the authority of Christ. And he says, I commend you because you remember me and everything and maintain the traditions or teachings as I've delivered them to you. This is what's very interesting here is that we've been looking at Paul's instruction and correction for the church in Corinth as he's trying to correct their course, if you will. And he's talking a lot about all of the practical living things that they need to be corrected in, their actions, right? Their testimonies, their practice. And here what's interesting is is Paul says, listen, I commend you because you get the doctrine. You get the teaching. You understand that. And isn't it interesting that 1 Corinthians is not heavy on doctrine as it relates to theology and understanding of theology. It would seem, and most commentators agree with this, the church at Corinth had an understanding of the teachings of Christ and the doctrine of Christ. They understood that. But Paul's going to commend them for that. But then he's going to say this, verse 3. He's going to use the word but. But I want you to understand something. So again, as we've seen each kind of step of the way, Paul is giving them instruction to try to correct them. He commends them for their stance in Christ. But now he's going to give them some corrective instruction as it relates again to some of the practical living things. Now, as we jump into verse 3, I want you not to miss this because verse 3, I believe, is the gateway to understanding for verses 4 through 16. Verse 3 is that gateway, okay? And, And have you ever watched a movie before? That when you watched the movie, thought it was an excellent movie and you wanted someone else to watch it with you that didn't see it. If you're a spouse, it's your spouse that maybe missed it. You're sitting there and you know that when you watch the movie, the opening like 10 minutes is of huge value because if you miss anything in that first 10 minutes, the rest of the movie is not going to make any sense to you. Okay, Probably can all think of a movie like that where when you watch it, there's like maybe some dates that are put on the screen or there's like a dialogue, uh, there's like a, a text that's on the screen that you have to read as the movie gets started because if you miss that, you're not gonna understand everything. If I'm watching a movie with my wife and maybe I've seen the movie and I want her to see it and I'm excited about it, um, I'll, like, I'll watch her and be like, are you paying attention to this? You have to read this. Like, or, or it will show the dates and I'll be like, did you see the dates? And she'll be like, I saw the dates, right? Because you know if you don't get that first part, the rest of the movie's not gonna make sense. Listen, that's how I feel about verse three. We need to get verse three as we begin here, okay? Look at verse three with me. Paul says this, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. This is a timeless principle 
that Paul is laying out for the believers in Corinth. It's a timeless principle that still exists even today for you and I, that the, the, the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, the head of Christ is God. Now, this is so important because if we miss this, if we dismiss this, if we don't get this, if we don't understand this, then everything else that follows in verses 4 through 16 are going to be like, what's he talking about? What is he talking about? But if we do understand this timeless principle, things in verses 4 through 16 will begin to fall into place and make a lot more sense for us. Okay. Now, there's three parts to this timeless principle. In verses 4 through 16, we've already read it, we'll support these principles. Okay, this timeless principle. Three parts. Part one, the head of every man is Christ. Part two, the head of a wife is her husband. And part three, the head of Christ is God. Let me begin this morning by focusing on the two bookends to this. Okay, the two bookends before we get to that center one. Okay, part one, the head of every man is Christ. The word head here used in the Greek is the word kephale, and, and it brings with it an understanding either of source or origin, or it brings with it this understanding of leadership and authority. That's what seems to make the most sense in this context, as well as with the consistency of the rest of Scripture. Even though there is some debate about that word, that meaning of head here, it seems very consistent with the teaching of Scripture and logical in its context that it means leader or authority because Christ is the head of every man. Christ is the head of the church. He's the head of every man, the ultimate head of every man and woman, and he's the ultimate head over all creation. Jesus Christ is Lord of all, the word of God tells us. There are many passages of scripture that consistently teach this. Many instances in the life of Christ where this is demonstrated, where Jesus shows authority and power over creation, authority and power over man, authority and power over Satan, over the demons. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Now, let me just stop for a minute because I want to share with you something very important. If you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he is head even over you. Just because you don't have a relationship with Christ or you say, I don't believe in Jesus or I'm not sure about Jesus, he is still head authority over you as well. The Bible tells us one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so this is why it is so valuable if you're here today to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news concerning Jesus Christ. The good news is that Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God, who has all authority and power, laid down his life. He was beaten, bruised, mocked, spit on, crucified in place of sinful man so that we could have forgiveness of our sins. The good news is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sin, for my sin, was buried and rose again the third day. There's an empty tomb today because Christ is alive. And the word of God tells us that if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you can be saved. You can have forgiveness of your sins. He can be your Lord and Savior as well. And if you need to know Jesus Christ as Savior today, do not leave without talking to me, another pastor, someone that invited you today, because that is so valuable and important. The most valuable, important thing you can do is to know Christ as Savior. But this universal, timeless principle that Paul lays out, part one, is that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. 
Again, the scriptures support this. The scriptures show forth this. What does that mean for us? If Christ is the head of every man and women in creation, if he's the Lord of all, he is then our leader, our authority. He is the one that calls the shots, if you will, in our lives. He's the one that tells us what it is we can and cannot do, how we should live and how we should glorify him. If he is our head, if he is God, if he is our Lord and master, then that means what he says goes because he is our ultimate authority and leader. What he commands, we obey. What he instructs, we listen to. What he asks us, we give. What he tells us to do, we do because he's our final authority. I don't know if you've ever been a part of a wedding rehearsal. And if you go to a wedding rehearsal, they can be the most chaotic experiences you've ever been a part of, or they can be very smooth operating depending on who is the coordinator and depending on who is kind of giving oversight to it. And in any wedding reception, you have multiple things that happen and it's kind of like par for the course. Someone's late, so you're waiting on someone to get started and we're like, everybody's here except for one of the groomsmen. And it's that groomsman, and you're like, oh, of course he's late. Like, everybody knew he was going to be late. Or we're waiting on a family member to get there. Or we're waiting on, like, the ring bearer, the flower girl, because they need to know what's going on. And what makes wedding rehearsals very chaotic is when no one knows who is calling the shots. Everybody has an opinion. You know this. If, if you've been a part of a wedding, if you've been married, if you have been in a wedding rehearsal, you know everybody has an opinion about how every single thing is supposed to go. From where the groomsmen stand, to where the bridesmaids stand, to where the maid of honor stands, to where the best man stands, to where the bride and groom will be standing, to who's going to be seated when, to what music's going to be played, to how they're going to be dismissed. So many parts that everybody has opinions about during a wedding. You know what makes it run really smooth is when there's a key point person that is calling the shots, a wedding coordinator is the person who is lining everybody up and telling everybody where they need to be. I have served as a wedding coordinator by default as the officiating pastor before. I don't like doing that, okay? I'm not a big fan, but to make things very easy, the only person I listen to if I am going to be coordinating that rehearsal is the bride. I don't care what anybody else says. I'm listening to the bride. Bride happy, everybody happy, okay? So, so when I'm coordinating a wedding, if I'm the person in charge, people can give me their opinions and I'll be like, thank you for your opinion. Bride, what do you want, okay? Because it's her day, it's her day. I wanna make sure everything is precisely exactly how she wants it to be. There's no confusion in my mind. So guess what? If mom of the bride tells me she wants it this way and the bride's like, but I want it this way, bride wins. If groom tells me he wants it with him, bride tells me, bride wins, okay? I make that abundantly clear in premarital counseling. When we talk about the wedding, I always look at the groom and be like, listen, just so you know, what she wants goes at this wedding, okay? At this, at this ceremony, I make that abundantly clear. Now, here's why I share that with you, because that should be the same response that we have to what our Savior Jesus Christ commands, tells us, and wants from us. What we think, and I know this can sound harsh, it's not meant to sound harsh, what we think ultimately doesn't matter if it is different than what Christ says. What we want, as harsh as this sounds, and I don't mean this to be harsh because we all struggle with this, but what we want or think we want ultimately doesn't matter if it's not what Christ wants for us. And can I even say what our culture demands and what our culture says means nothing if it is contrary to what Christ says. 
Don't miss this universal principle. First part, the head of every man is Christ. How much chaos, confusion, and error could be avoided if we just got that? You are not your own, the word of God says. You've been bought with a price. Glorify God then with your body. The heart or the head of every man is Christ. Look at the third part of this verse. The head of Christ is God. Purposely looking at this in a bookended way, okay? The head of Christ is God. We understand this as we look at the life of Christ. Jesus told his followers in so many passages that are recorded for us. John 6.38, Jesus said, I came not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. John 5.30, Jesus said, I seek to do the will of the Father. In Luke 2.49, he said to them, why do you seek me? Do you not know I must be about my Father's business? Luke 22.42, he says, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. John 4.34, Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Christ demonstrated a submission to the will of the Father throughout the entirety of his life. He says, I'm here to do the will of the Father. I'm not doing anything on my own authority, but on the authority of the one who sent me. Even when Jesus was in complete anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he's pouring his heart out in prayer to the Father, as he's facing the soon wrath of God on his shoulders because of our sin, when Jesus would endure the wrath of Almighty God, in that moment, he's praying to the Father, and in the most intense moment where the Word of God tells us in Luke's Gospel that Christ sweat as it were drops of blood because of the stress and strain of the impending wrath of God that would be on his shoulders. His his prayer to the Father was not my will, but your will be done. Jesus was in full submission to the will of the Father. And even in the Godhead, within the Trinity, there is a submission by Christ to the Father here that we see. The head of Christ is God. Jesus openly spoke about this. He made this known and he demonstrated it in his action. And it's so important and valuable for us to understand this. Let me pause for a moment because I think this is so valuable. Because here's what I believe the devil desires to do, our enemy desires to do, is take the perfect plan of God, the order that God has created, the perfect unity that God has planned and created in his order, that the devil desires to take that which God has instructed and commanded and turn it on its head, turn it backwards and make it seem like something it's not. So process this with me. Just verse three. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. Isn't that a wonderful relationship and plan God has? Would anybody here object? Would anybody here be like, no, that's an awful plan. I hate that plan. The head of every man is Christ? What? That Christ cares and provides and is with us and comforts us and guides us, that he sustains us, that he has given himself as an offering for us so that we might have forgiveness of sins. That Jesus Christ truly is the one that God has sent to be savior of the world. The head of every man is Christ. We wouldn't have a problem with that. The head of Christ is God. 
Christ perfectly submitted to the will of the Father. He acknowledges the Father's authority and power. He deferred to the will of the Father and seeks to please the Father. Anyone have a problem with either of those two? It's pleasant, it's necessary, it works, it is God's plan. So what about that part in the middle? I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. People today say the head of every wife is her husband. People today say that's sexist, it's belittling to women, it puts women in a lesser light, and they are seen as lesser value. Can I ask you a question? Do we think that about Christ? That because the head of Christ is God and Christ submits to the will of the Father, Christ is in submission to the will of the Father, do we think that it puts Jesus in a light of dishonor, as less valuable, as worth less, without honor because he submits to the will of the Father? Do we see ourselves as not valuable, without worth, without honor because we submit to Christ's authority? And I say to you, no, to both. I equally say no to the notion that because scripture teaches the head of the wife is her husband, that it puts women in a place of lesser value, worth, care, or honor in the sight of Christ. Do you see the harmony that God has created us with? And how much that is being distorted? How many dissensions and how much disunity is being caused over this? One pastor says this about Paul's instruction. Maybe someday in history, people are going to see Paul for who he is, the great emancipator and protector of women as God used him to show that there is, and mark this, though there is a divine distinction in the roles, there is no distinction in spiritual life. There's no distinction in the essence. There's no distinction in the person. There's no distinction in the worth of the person. There's no distinction in the emotion or the intellect or the will or the mind or the capacity or the ability between men and women in terms of what they can accomplish or how they can relate themselves to God. There is only a distinction in the role that they are assigned within the framework of society. Women are not inferior to men in terms of essence, in terms of personality, in terms of thinking, in terms of anything other than the role they've been assigned. Don't miss this. Don't miss what he says there. There's a divine distinction in roles, but not in worth, in roles, but not in value, in roles, but not in thinking, personality, intellect, accomplishment, or capacity. The same pastor goes on to say about this text, the submission of man to Christ and a wife to her husband and Christ to God. He says this, if Christ does not submit to the father, redemption is not accomplished. Man is lost, he's doomed, and God is at war with himself if the son does not submit. If man, on the other hand, does not submit to Christ, then man is lost. He's, his destiny is denied and judgment falls on him. If woman does not submit to man in the family, the family is shattered and society is wrecked. So God is saying, these are the principles, everybody. There's a submission principle between man and man, between man and God, and between God and God. It pervades everything. This is the universal principle that Paul is laying out here and reminding the Corinthian believers about and it's one we must be reminded of today. The head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. This is not cultural. This is timeless. 
It remains true today. It is biblical. It is God's plan for order and health in the body of Christ and in the home. Now, with that timeless principle in mind, Paul goes on to share a cultural expression, I believe, or application the believers in Corinth were wrestling with and asking about. Okay, remember we talked about it in, in Paul's letter here. There's a section where now Paul seems to be addressing questions the Corinthian believers have presented his way or problems that they were experiencing, dissensions they were experiencing within the church, and he's, he's giving them responses and he's giving them answers. So let's look at the cultural expression. I believe it's really portrayed in verses four and five as we see it here. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Okay, now verses six through 16 that we've already read, it really then just goes into more detail, and we'll look at it in just a moment. But Paul is, is encouraging them here with something that now is an outworking culturally of the universal principle he's already reminded them about. There was a response on the part of some within the church in Corinth where they were bucking God's created order and also bucking this timeless principle that Paul felt he needed the first as an authority established for them before he went into some very specific things. People ask about this passage. Is it cultural or is it normative and necessary for us to practice today? And the answer to that is yes, okay? It is cultural, yes, but also, yes, there is a timeless principle at play here. Yes, we need to obey and follow the biblical principle, but no, we don't need to necessarily follow all of the cultural expressions we see at work. Let me explain this a bit more. I think a prime example of this would be when the word of God tells us as believers that we're to care for one another, love one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens. We're also told as believers in Christ that we're to greet one another with a holy what? Kiss. How many of you got kissed this morning when you came into church? Okay. That, for many of you are thinking, thankfully, is not a universal commandment to kiss one another. Now, in some cultures, it is. In some cultures, to not give a kiss on the cheek or elsewhere is considered to be something that is completely wrong. And so when you are in that culture and you are in that environment where to do so would be to demonstrate obedience to the command of God to love one another and care for one another and greet one another, you kiss. In our church and culture in which we find ourselves living in, the universal principle remains to care for one another and to love one another and to greet one another, but the practical outworking of that culturally isn't necessarily happening here. In my family, it does. We gather together for a family reunion, and we have all of these people gathered together for a family reunion I've even seen, and some of them in years, and you get together. What I do, even with the men, my cousins, my uncles, we give each other a hug and we give each other a kiss on the cheek. It's what Italians do, okay? So if I come up to you on accident one day and I give you a hug and I kiss you, men, it's, it's an Italian thing, okay? But we understand the difference between the universal principle and necessarily the cultural expression of that. In some cultures today, what is being worked out in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is still the case, and out of respect and a desire to present oneself in a way that honors God, you would follow that custom to make sure that God is honored and glorified. Many cultures were at play here in the city of Corinth. And you had the culture and customs of the Jews at play. You had the culture and customs of the Romans. And you had the culture and customs of the Greeks. 
One pastor summarized these cultural clashes and he brings clarity to the customs of head coverings and hair coverings by saying this, and listen to this. This is what seems to be accurate historically, culturally, and in context of the biblical text we're looking at. In the city of Corinth, women who were proper, women who were modest, women who wanted to make a statement publicly and visibly about their submission to their husband, women who were feminine and wanted to take the role that was assigned to them in their society, would wear a veil as a symbol of their submission. That was the symbol, to be veiled. Now, that particular symbol varied from culture to culture, but in the Corinthian culture, veils were the sign of a woman's submissiveness. She was covering herself. She was leaving herself unexposed to other men and saying, I belong to my husband. I want no other than my husband. So to be veiled, to have a head covering, was to show forth a recognition and submission to the authority of her husband, and greater than that, a submission to and support of the universal principles we already examined as we began this morning. You see that? That when he talks about a woman who is prophesying or praying with her head uncovered, she dishonors her head since it's the same as if her head were shaven. He goes on, verse 6, for if a wife will not cover her head, she should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For man ought not to cover his head, since he's the image and glory of God. Woman is the glory of man. Man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. The because of the angels thing, I do not know. I don't have a reason to be able to explain that. But this is what he's saying here. He's saying in this passage, this understanding that he wants them to have is that to be veiled, to have a head covering, to have long hair, culturally what was seen is that was a mark purposefully, proactively on the part of a wife to her husband, on the part of a woman to her husband, that she would be showing forth that she is submitting to God's created order and the timeless principle that we've already looked at. To not do that, to shave her head or to cut her hair short, or to show up in the church to pray or to prophesy, to be seen in that way without a head covering, without a veil, would be for her to say, hey, listen, I'm bucking God's created order. I'm not following the standard that God has set. And that was something that culturally, most would agree as well, culturally, that in Corinth, women who would present themselves with unveiled faces or who would present themselves with their hair down were basically telling people, listen, I want you to be interested in me. It was seen as a sign of promiscuity in this culture. But to not have her head covered, to not have a veil was not what God would want for them because of what it pronounced to those that were there. It pronounced rebellion, promiscuity, rogue independence, and it was glaring in the society Paul was writing to. You couldn't miss it. It would clearly stand out. And that's what he lays out here for them. I'll give an example. Have you ever been to the beach walking on the boardwalk and there's t-shirt shops? And as you're walking by the t-shirt shops, sometimes you see a t-shirt that's there and it's like bold and bright and it's funny. And you'll stop and you'll like read it and you'll laugh because some of the phrases are quite funny. Some of them are not funny, right? Some of them are very bad. They're bad to the point that you're like, kids, keep walking and don't look over at the t-shirt shop because of images or statements that are being made. And I remember walking on the boardwalk and looking at some of these t-shirts thinking in my mind, who in their right mind would ever wear that? <laughs> who would ever wear that? Who would want to put on their chest something that everybody sees them would make them want to beat that person up, right? Because of what they're saying. 
vulgar statements to anybody looking at it. And, and to summarize, almost like, yeah, I hate your guts. You're worthless. Like, that's what they're promoting when they're wearing these t-shirts. And I remember thinking, like, why would anybody wear that? Why would anybody want to be known by that? It was bold and it was in your face. That's the same thing that we're talking about here. For a woman in this culture, in this setting, to show up without a head covering, with her hair shaved, her hair cut short, it would be bold and in your face that I am not in submission to God's created order. That's what it was communicating, and that's what would be seen. Paul challenged the believers in Corinth to uphold the biblical authority they believed in and to represent that clearly to the watching society they were in. And the same was true for men. He talks about in this same passage, he says that every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. He talks about verse, uh, verse seven, a man ought not to cover his head since he's the image and glory of God. Verse eight, man was not made from woman, but woman from man. If you jump down to verse 11, it says, uh, I'm sorry, verse 13, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him. But if a woman has long hair, it's for her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. He says the same thing is true about women and what they're presenting when they shave their head or cut their hair or go with uncovered veils. The same is true of what man is saying in this culture when man would have their hair long like a woman or a man would show up with his face veiled or his head covered. It's promoting and saying the opposite of what God says. In essence, what Paul's telling them here is remember the created order. Remember the timeless principle. Men, act like and demonstrate and show yourself as men. Women, act like and demonstrate and show yourself as women. Show yourself in obedience to the God-given roles that have been provided for you. And this was very controversial in the church at Corinth. But I don't want us to miss this. The purpose and plan that God has for this created order is order. It's his will. It's his plan. And it's been so distorted. We see all of that at play in verses 4 through 16. Again, verses 4 and 7 to 9, men don't cover your heads because culturally to do so would show the opposite of your role in the eyes of God. Verses 5 and 6 and verse 10, women cover your heads and don't shave your heads, but allow your hair to grow so that it would show you're under the authority of your husband and veils would show you're under the authority of your husband and ultimately under the authority of God. So some will ask, should women cover their heads today? Do they need a veil? Should believers as men shave their heads, remove their hats, cut their hair short? Should women only have long hair? Let me answer your question with a question. When you see a man with a shaved head today, beyond thinking, wow, that guy is attractive and handsome. Beyond that. (laughs) This is by choice, okay? That's by choice, sort of. (laughs) When you see a man with a shaved head, do you think, wow, that's a man that honors God. His family's in order. He's giving proper leadership to his wife. He's committed to the Lord's authority because he has a shaved head. When you see a woman with long hair or with a hat on her head, do you think, that is a submissive woman. She believes in submission to her husband and God's created order. When you see a man with an unshaved head, longer hair, hair that needs cut, do you think rebellion, dishonor, hater of God's created order? When you see a woman without a hat or veil with shorter hair or a shaved head, do you think clearly there is a woman who could care less about God? Clearly a rebellious woman. She's not even wearing a veil. 
If you say yes, you'd have to be thinking that about every woman in this congregation today because I don't see any veils and I don't necessarily see any hats. You'd equally say that about all the men who are here who have whole, whole heads of hair. Not that I'm jealous, but it's time to shave that off. <laughs> Culturally today, these same practices do not represent or teach to a watching world the same things they once did in our culture. Now, in some cultures of the world, they still do communicate this. That's why if you are overseas and you're in a culture where women will veil their faces or cover their heads, you, you respond in a way that would please and honor God. And you don't want to present yourselves. Ladies, if it is true in certain countries that to show up without your face veiled, that you are sending a message to all the men that I'm available to you, I'm promiscuous, I'm rebellious, you veil your face or you cover your head. And the same would be true for men. There's a universal principle at work, but it would seem very clear Paul is addressing a very specific cultural practice. Okay, verses 11 through 16, where he closes out this particular section, he reminds them of something that I think is so important. Verse 11, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as a man was made from man, so man is now born of woman. All things are from God. Paul reminds them of this in Christ in Christ, there is equality in Christ in terms of worth and value and significance. There's a, a equality in the eyes of Christ as far as Christ has died for male and female. We are one in Christ. And he says, listen, men and women, you are not independent of one another. We are one in Christ. We need one another and serve one another and care for one another in this way. He reminds them, for, really I think this is a reminder for men not to look at their position as created by God as a dictatorship or to be harsh, or to be unloving or to be unkind. He reminds them that all of this comes from him. All of this comes from him. Verses 13 to 15, they recap one more time Paul's above argument. He closes in verse 16 by sharing that the church is in agreement. No man or woman is to present themselves in any way in any of the churches that would show forth a lack of acknowledgement and submission to God's authority and commands. That's a lot. That's a lot. So let me just recap. Timeless principle. I want you to understand the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. The cultural expression Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Paul's instruction, one, recognize and remember your God-given role. This is what he's communicating with them. He's wanting them to remember and recognize their God-given role. He wants the believers in Corinth to remember and embrace their God-given roles in a society that was encouraging them to rebel. Let me say that again. He wants them to recognize and remember their God-given roles in a society that was encouraging them to rebel. Does that sound familiar? There's nothing new under the sun. Again, not lesser, not less important, not less valuable, not inferior roles, but different and number two, he wants them to seek to demonstrate and not subvert God's designed order. He wants it to go beyond a head knowledge and actually be that which they are practicing. He wants men to look, act, lead, and submit to the will of God and to be the men God has called them to be. He wants women to act, look, and show submission to the will of God in the manner to which he has called them to be. 
And so I wonder, how are you and I demonstrating to a watching world that our head collectively is Christ, who is the head of the church, that what he says goes? Are we showing that forth in our relationships and our submission to God's timeless truth? So what does that hold for us today? Let me just give us two quick giveaways. Two, I'm sorry, takeaways. Takeaway number one. God's word is essential for our living, not just our learning. Sometimes we can be really good at filling our head with more knowledge. But I believe we see in the demonstration of what Paul's teaching the church at Corinth, it must be beyond an acknowledgement in our heads. And it must be that which we practice in our lives. God's word is essential for our living, not just our learning. Listen, if you're a child of God, if you're a believer in Christ, and you say, I believe the word of God to be the authoritative word of God, then it should have a direct impact on our living. Our day-to-day living should be impacted by that. Number two, our submission must be first to the Lord and not our culture. We live in an environment today where sadly, even amongst the believer in Christ that claims to be a believer in Christ, there is a willful submission to culture even over Christ. And that must never be the case for you and I. Our submission must be first to the Lord and not to our culture. We must be found guilty of standing on the side of the Lord and not the side of culture. When those two things clash, Christ must have the preeminence. He must have the authority. And I believe that Paul's demonstrating that and calling on these believers in the midst of a culture that was promoting the direct opposite, that they would follow Christ and that they would show submission to the will of their Father. I hope that makes sense. I hope that's clear. I hope that's helpful as we seek to live lives pleasing to the Lord. Let's pray together and we will close with an opportunity to sing out to our God. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the demonstration that you've given to us in your word, Lord, of a timeless principle. Truly, Christ is the head of every man. Lord, we we submit to the will of, of, of your will, Lord, of what you want and what you desire. I pray that we would have that seen and it would be worked out in our lives, Lord, not just in our homes, but in the public arena, in the private arena, in the church arena, that we submit to Christ and that you'd receive glory in that. Help our knowledge and understanding of the word to impact our living. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.